Welcome to the 16th episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. Wow. Right? Just, just wow. Uh, I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And wow, we have a, a ton of stuff to talk about this week, but I want to actually tie something into last week when we talked about weaponized insincerity, right? We were talking about a really great piece by Lori Penny about um, sort of tricksters and the Republican Party. And I want to talk about the new Harry Potter book and weaponized Harry Potter. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That fucking J.K. Rowling, man. <laughs> I never trusted her. <laughs> Um, we're not going to talk about weaponized Harry Potter as much as um, that would probably be a little bit of a more uplifting um, conversation than the one we're set to have. I saw someone say this week that um, that they posted one of these really dumb internet surveys that said that millennials are even more worried about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump than they are about Voldemort. And I was like, well... <laughs> Uh, Voldemort's not real. Um, but yeah, we are going to talk about weapon. We're going to talk about weaponized transparency, which we could probably tie into an invisible cloak, mind reading magic and surveillance technologies that run throughout the, uh, the, the school infrastructure at Hogwarts and the ministry of magic. But we're talking about weaponized transparency when it comes to WikiLeaks um, and the hack of the Democratic National Committee's emails. Yeah, so, um, yeah, apparently there, well, I mean, as of the end of the week, it's not just, um, it's it's the Democratic fundraising, and the last I heard um, as of Friday, it's actually the Hillary Clinton campaign had a, a compromise of a machine or two as well was being. So there's three levels of this. I've, yeah, and I've also heard, but again, I don't know too much that the Clinton Foundation was um, has has seen some of this. I've seen some sort of statements saying some of the things that were compromised were perhaps just merely similar, similar, similar or related vulnerabilities to the intrusion that happened with the DNC emails. But so let's let's start there with what we know, what we don't, what we don't know about. Um, so what did, what did the emails, so someone hacked into the Democratic National Committee, got a bunch of emails, gave them to WikiLeaks and pub, pu- published them online, and and all fingers right. point towards Russians. Right, and published them online on the eve of the DNC, or the Democratic Party convention this past week in Philly. So conveniently timed emails that were sort of presented as though they were, um, had They were proof that the party had rigged the election for Hillary Clinton, Um, but I'm not clear, having looked at them, that that's actually what happened. But there's so there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces at play here. So which ones should we start with? Should we start with the contents of the email, the time of the email, the role of WikiLeaks, or the role of the entity which all signs point to, which is the Russian government? Um, I think starting with the content of the emails, because I think that that had the most polarizing effect. But 
So, I mean, you know, I think that there were there were several emails that I thought were fairly damning in terms of the fact that there appeared to be people fairly high up within the Democratic Party who clearly had an opinion on which Democrat they wanted to win the nomination. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to. It's hard. It's sort of hard for me to see this raised to the level of scandal. I mean, you know, I, I voted in the primary. Um, my candidate did not win the primary in my state. I, uh, I, I don't see any evidence that there was a rigging of the election or voter fraud. I mean, I think that, you know, we live in this sort of really vastly complicated world of politics, and I think it's important to remember that neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party nor any other party, for that matter, are government entities. They're private organizations, right? They're private organizations, and people that work for those organizations, both very low-level people who tend to probably be volunteers, um, and then the, the really sort of more well-known people higher up in the party, um, I think, have a clear vision of what they want the party to look like, who they think that party representative should be. This is a problem that I have with party politics, particularly two-party politics, as they are currently occur in the U.S. There's very little. It's not really an open it's not really an open organization for sort of anyone, uh, any liberal to participate in. Like the party has, the party is a company and companies do demand um, loyalty from the people who, who both work there, the people who participate in it. It's a, I mean, it is a flawed game. I'm not going to say that it's a rigged game because that's a different kind of that's a different term. Rigging an election is is closer to what we see with the with the sort of hack of the DNC emails um, by Russia. Rig, rigging the election is 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 um, breaking into someone's hotel room in the Watergate Hotel. Or yeah, or. Actually breaking into the voting machines themselves and changing the right, votes. changing the yeah. votes, saying that saying as a as a as an employee of a company, I prefer X person to Y person. I prefer Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders. Uh, that to me, that's not that's sort of I don't know how we would ever ever stop that sort of thing from happening because people who work for the Democratic Party, people who work for the Republican Party, are political people with political beliefs and political values, and they're going to have a preference. That's why they work for the party. I don't know how you'd ever strip, um, how you'd ever strip that sort of values from people who work from the party. Again, like this is why it's perhaps a really inevitably flawed system, but I don't see any of the emails as being a smoking gun that their party was, that the, that the elections were rigged for Hillary Clinton. I mean, if we think about it, we all knew, we all knew in 2012 when Hillary lost the nomination that she was going to run for president again. We knew four years ago that when she ran for president again, in all likelihood, she was going to be the dominant, not just the dominant, she was sort of the de facto nominee. We knew that four years ago. Over two years ago, most Democratic people within the Democratic Party came out and endorsed her. 
she won the she won by votes um i i don't know what to say like she's an incumbent she's a powerful person within the party and the party nominated the person who was a powerful person within the party they did not nominate the person who changed his party affiliation to democrat in order to run yeah yeah i mean i i don't really have a whole lot of thoughts on on that that first portion the contents of the email and i guess the direct effect of of what of what happened um, I, I don't find it at all surprising any of that that uh, people had a had a bias and the machine was working for on behalf of of the winner of that bias. Um, I I mean I guess I would have to ask if if Hillary's got things so rigged, how come she didn't win in two thousand twelve? Does that mean Obama had it more rigged? What, you know, but what, actually I don't want to go. Well, backwards. no, no. I mean, and I think actually, so if if if. If you believe that the, it was rigged, then certainly the the achievements of Bernie Sanders, ri- actually rigged or not rigged, rigged or not rigged, the achievements of Bernie Sanders should not can, cannot be understated. He, I think, he changed the face of the election. He forced Hillary Clinton left. He, the sort of they have changed the way in which the Democratic Party platform looks and i think that she um i'm not sure that she can sort of shrug off people to the left of her in the way that she would have very easily done had it not been for bernie sanders so but all that aside all that aside the fact that this is that the dns that people so this is what bothers me i'll say this people who have been Bernie Sanders supporters who are cheering the release of these emails that may be damning for the party machine, who are cheering the release of these emails by WikiLeaks, to me is so wildly, at best, I think, naive and actually shockingly unethical that I'm, I'm actually... I had sort of had it up to here with what you and I have both called the Bernie bros for a very long time, um, but cheering, cheering for the hack of a private organization and the release of personally identifiable information and the overwhelming number of emails and data that was released were average citizens who donated money to the Republican, or excuse me, to the Democratic Party and low-level party operatives, perhaps even volunteers, trading very banal emails that WikiLeaks released, cheering for that, cheering for that because there are maybe nine emails in which people said mean things about Bernie Sanders, to me is absolutely cheering for crypto-fascism. So, I said it. Okay. So, um, I mean... You know the 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 direct impact, the direct effect. You know the 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 system being rigged or stacked in 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 a certain person's favor does not surprise me at all. The Bernie Bros, I think, is just a, a new flavor of 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 extremely passionate group of folks who tend to just get really emotional around election time. And what really interests me is is the strings attached to that of people who can yank those strings and and get certain responses. And then that moves into the territory of what really excites 
excites me, excites me, interests me, is the the theatrics of all of this. And you mean the time, I, like the timing of it? Well, the 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 timing, the way you can do it, the way the press works, the way social media works, um, whether it was Russia behind it or not, the thought of Russia being behind it, being right before the the Democratic national election, the falling of WikiLeaks from this this supposed high throne of moral high ground that that makes hacking and all of this right um, down to this other lower level. And, and then all of this in this larger landscape of what I, what I track on is, is cybersecurity, but I, I call it cybersecurity because it's very much theater um, of, of how do we you know, defend our systems, how do we um, hack, how do we release, how do we leak, how do we, you know, how does all of this happen and um, to influence certain things and get people worked up in a, in a, in a certain way. And it troubles me that WikiLeaks, we started this with weaponized transparency, is I'm very much a pro-transparency person. I'm not in favor of of that kind of behavior. I think emails are somewhat of a sacred ground. There's a FOIA process. There's journalistic integrity processes. There's a lot of things. So, um, so well, just the, the whole theater fascinates me. Yeah, no, I mean, and to be clear, so these emails would not have been FOIAble. Like I said, this was a private company. This was not a governmental company. You can't FOIA a private company and ask for information. But I think uh, what happens when, you know, so I, I agree. Like, I think that transparency is really important. I think the efforts to make the FOIA process, for example, easier, more accessible, make government more responsive to the demands to open up data are also really, really important. But I think that breaking in to someone's email, right, breaking into a private entity's email and releasing that data is not whistleblowing. So I've seen a lot of people use terms to describe what happened that weren't to me the accurate terms. People have said, for example, that the DNC emails were leaked. They weren't leaked. They were stolen, right? There was not a whistleblower. A whistleblower is someone, sometimes at a government agency, sometimes at a private agency, that makes this data, this sort of private data, available publicly. Oftentimes they work, and I think what we've, what we've seen, and Edward Snowden is a great example of this, is what we've seen that this works best when whistleblowers or this kind of um, information, these leaks, are then worked together hand in hand with investigative journalists who then go through and they retract information, right? Uh, WikiLeaks said that it was going to release a bunch of voicemails from the DNC, and the first the first voicemail that that they released was a was of a child, a child leaving a message for their dad. Like that has no journalistic value. I'm sorry. Like jur- like there are there are ethical standards of what kinds of things get released. There are stories that journalists may or may not want to follow up on just because information has been released in a in a giant file by WikiLeaks, we don't even actually know if it's verifiable, right? So cybersecurity experts have looked through some of the information and it doesn't appear as though it, details have been changed within these emails 
the contents of the emails, for example, from the Democratic Party, but it's actually really easy to plant false information within within a batch data release like this. So this should be done, I believe, hand in hand with investigative journalists who follow who follow these things up. And Glenn Greenwald, his work with Edward Snowden, I think, is sort of not the perfect model, but a better model than just releasing bulk information that then actually has suits the purpose of doxing a bunch of of both Democratic Party donors and low-level um, party employees that really has nothing to do with anything to do with sort of some vast conspiracy to make sure that Donald Trump is elected in November. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with, I mean, transparency is, is and I get this a lot in, in the API world saying, you know, when I go around and say, hey, everyone should have APIs, that, you know, people go, oh, we should just put everything on the internet, you're real smart, uh, way to go. And I'm like, you know, obviously that's a, a an ignorant uh, kind of uneducated argument about what an API is. And my my perspective on transparency is, you know, transparency for healthcare uh, data looks like one thing. Education, it looks like another. Higher education, corporate education versus K through 12 all look very different. So we're going to have very different conversations, I think, depending on which agency. And like you said, this is these are private organizations. And do we want every corporation to have to disclose that they have bias in favor towards one certain person or product or brand or group of people? No, that's not going to be very conducive to getting shit done in this world. Well, I mean, and to me, it's it's not even just that. I mean, I think we can look at some corporate actors and we can sort of understand, we can sort of see by who they are, what they do, what they buy, what they sell, what who they lobby, how they lobby, what um, that we sort of can understand what their biases are, right? I can I can sort of get a vague notion, not a full picture, but a fairly a fairly decent picture of the sort of the values of a company like Exxon Mobil, right? So, but for me, what bothers me is that if indeed the sort of WikiLeaks version of the future is true, then none of our electronic communications are safe at all. For when we piss off the people who feed Julian Assange information, right? So you will not be able to ask questions in an email, right? So people, there are reporters who sent a question to the DNC who now WikiLeaks little fandom are sort of saying, it's time for you to resign. How dare you ask, how dare you ask a question? Like you, apparently you're sort of a biased reporter. You're in with the, with the Democrats. You won't be able to ask questions via email. You won't be able to hold discussions via email. You won't be able to raise ethical questions via email. You will not be able to have any conversations, casual, casual conversations where your ideas or your boss's ideas or your colleagues' ideas are sort of being bandied about because one excerpt of that could be hacked and exposed as the smoking gun for a story that someone else wants to tell. And to me, that is an incredibly frightening future. One where, and it's one where the sort of communication, the, the, the conversations where shit gets done, where powerful, frightening shit gets done, is not done via email. Donald Trump has never fucking sent an email in his life. He has face-to-face conversations, right? 
The mafia has face-to-face conversations. People who get things done go in person. You get a meeting in person with your congressperson, and you get stuff done in a face-to-face, off-the-record conversation. Powerful people get stuff done via via off-the-record conversations. Email is how the rest of us get work done, right? And like couriers. We need need more couriers. And so the notion that we're going to make all of our email communications, again, is, is, it's crypto fascism. It's oligarchy. You will have powerful people who are still able to sort of do shady shit because they can get a meeting with the president. They can get a meeting with Donald Trump. They can play a round of golf with Donald Trump. You don't, you don't write an email to Donald Trump where you plan your anti-Muslim plan, you talk about it over the fucking 17th hole of golf. Like, that's how shit gets done. So the fact that WikiLeaks wants to expose some low-level employee now at the DNC, but who knows where next, whatever pisses off Julian Assange personally, right? He is WikiLeaks. Whatever personally pisses him off is now, now gets to be sort of held up I mean, honestly, I I have seen people praising these leaks and I am fucking mortified because they are educators and they are people within ed tech who think it's awesome that we are eroding the ability for people to communicate in privately. And it, to me, it really spells a dystopian future of, a dystopian future of, of the public sphere, the dystopian future where no one will be free to speak except the very powerful. Well, this, I mean, what scares me about this is, is like the industry that I've talked about a lot in the last couple episodes, drones, it's being defined by some of the very badly behaved in the space. So um, the, our, our military um, jackasses out in the woods in various states doing things. So the, the, the worst of the worst, defining what, what laws and, and how we, we operate in these. When it comes to hacking and that that a certain group of people condone this as long as it suits their right. motives you know they're going to be all pissy when it when it when there's a hack of the same ilk um that doesn't support it but as long as it's in their realm they're going to support it and this conversation the worst actor the bar has been set by who us us i would say one our u.s government and two our technical uh silicon valley so our tech community entrepreneurial community um unicorns that seem to be setting the tone for the conversation worldwide about how we use the internet so it's like these two entities have set the tone for for what's acceptable and what you just laid out is is obviously acceptable as long as it's it, it can suit the the theater the production that you're working on at the moment um, go for it. Well, I mean, this this is the piece, of course, that's I think important to remember is this notion. That this is the, somehow that the Russian government's um, intervention in a in a U.S. election is somehow the first time that someone's messed with elections is laughable. Perhaps, perhaps it's the first time that someone's intervened with U.S. elections, but the U.S. has sort of made a career, right? The CIA has sort of made a career of messing with elections. That's sort of, (laughs) I don't know if it's in the mission statement, but like, let's fuck with your democracy is sort of a 
core mantra of the way in which U.S. foreign policy and the CIA in particular has operated. So, I mean, the fact that this is now happening to us is, to me, an interesting shift in, um, in geopolitics. And it's a shift that we talked about a little bit last week and the week before with when we talked about um, uh, hacking and, and vulnerability in the Zero Days documentary, right? Cyber warfare is probably going to look really different than previous wars because it's not necessarily about the number of bodies, um, soldiers' bodies, that you can sort of throw at a problem. It's not really about the number of guns or the tanks or aircraft or aircraft carriers that you can throw at a problem. It, it looks fundamentally different. And the, po the power, who has power and who doesn't have power is also really different as well. You don't actually have to have built up a vast standing army to be a powerful player in cyber warfare. Right, and I think this is why we see this, like the Syrian, the Syrians, the Iranians, for example, having really sort of built up their um, built up their um, hacking um, expertise without actually having a large standing army. So the U.S. is vulnerable in ways in which we are not vulnerable, and we are not vulnerable in the same way to a, an inv invasion by an army. We're not vulnerable the same way to an invasion by air or by land. But an invasion digitally, I mean, I think it's very clear that some of the, some of the most powerful players um, and most powerful entities, whether governmental or sort of government adjacent, the DNC, the OPM, right, um, that they, we are hugely vulnerable. And we're not just vulnerable to people who we thought traditionally as our enemy, although in this case it's pretty clear that it is someone who historically, traditionally has been our enemy. And I think that if we think about sort of the future of geopolitics is fairly clearly, I don't think we've called, we don't think we sort of said Russia is our enemy, but I think that people's hackles are certainly raised by um, by Russian encroachment into Ukraine, Russian encroachment into Crimea, except for Donald Trump, who well, supports that, both of those. Who supports I mean, this, both of those. This, yeah, I mean, okay, so quick quick note on that bullshit. You know, like, the fact that his his encouragement, even joking aside, whatever it is, as a, as a leading presidential campaign, joking and encouraging this theater that you are correct. Every state actor has a cyber unit now, thanks to um, U.S. and China's kind of setting the tone for what the conversation is going to look like there. But for our one of our presidential candidates to encourage that, that the Russian um, actors actually go after the other, whether it was real or not, or theater or not, uh, is like uh, appalling to me. I fucking grew up in the 70s and 80s, and... And and I you know I watched uh, <laughs> I watched Red Dawn it's I watched Red Dawn shit, I grew up yeah. on Red Dawn and you know yeah. Wolverines you know I mean what an invasion looks like now is radically different and and tuning into you know whether it's North Korea going after e-commerce sites in South Korea whether it's China going after airports in Vietnam whether it's us going after nuclear reactors in Iran or Russia coming after the DNC committee this is how invasions and and things are executed in today's world I cannot believe just hearing you shout wolverines 
that the Republican convention missed up on met, missed the opportunity to have C. Thomas Howell be a spokesperson on stage. He could have totally done the Wolverines thing, and he could have tied in the Outsiders and been probably better than Scott Baio. And I think he could have got, I'm pretty sure, and he did, oh, he did the whole blackface thing. That's right. Oh, you racist right-wing people. Prop- they fucked up their opportunity. They late. fucked up the, yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can't, we can't end it on we C. Thomas Howell. So, okay, let's, let's, I want to, this is perhaps, perhaps we can tie this in. I want to sort of make a note of one other momentous um, event this week for both of us. We both were denied t- verification by Twitter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Damn it. I'm, the end. <laughs> I'm recording this in the fetal position in the corner. I'm feeling strong enough to get out. No, I don't. I'm not as 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 bummed about it, but um, I definitely can't see why they would not. Uh, verify you. I mean, uh, why you know, wouldn't just, they verify you? Because uh, I'm nobody. I'm 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 smaller in 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 your context, and I'm I definitely don't deal with as much harassment as as you do. And just the fact that they wouldn't support you, and um, I think is is interesting. And I think you know, um, you know, to encourage companies or corporations to be more open and transparent, they should uh, they should make sure they're 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 troll defense mechanisms and and anti uh, harassment you know in this cybersecurity theater that we're talking about that they should open up their tools to people like you so i mean i have a couple of responses i mean i have actually many responses i've been sort of thinking all week about how i wanted to blog about this because i feel in one way having to ask for verification is already a flawed game like i don't actually care much about the blue check but I do want better tools to manage my feet my mentions because they can get out of fucking control it was funny the night that I got my rejection email from them that I saw three white guys who have like a tenth as many followers as me boasting that they had received the blue check so I don't know I mean I have published three books I've given Dozens of keynotes across around the world. Um, And I said in my application that I have, you know, some 20,000 people blocked on Twitter due to harassment. Um, So I'm not sure, I'm not sure why I don't, why I wasn't good enough for them. Um, Why I didn't raise to the level of being worthy of verification. But the other piece that they didn't do is when they responded to both of us, they didn't say, thanks for sending us a copy of your photo ID, but we've made sure to delete, to delete this personally personally identifiable um, information from our databases. We don't think you're actually a blue check worthy person, but we get that you're a real person and we're going to do our best to not retain this information on you. So now I'm sort of in the position of worst of both worlds, right? Not only does Twitter not want to give me it's symbolic protection, but it actually now has a copy of my fucking driver's license, right? So I have, I have actually, in, by trying to decrease my vulnerability to harassment, I have increased my vul- vulnerability to hacking. So thanks a fucking lot, Twitter. Well, I mean, like the DNC um, with Twitter, I'm, 
I'm not surprised that the, the, the lion's share of their attention is going to their investors and to their advertising. And your harassment is, is probably pretty low on the spectrum. They, um, you know, when it comes to eyeballs and advertising and generating revenue, I think uh, the people harassing you are probably more valuable to they them. They probably have VC funding. No. Yeah. Well, some. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, again, I mean, I'm, you know, beating a, a dead horse here that's been dead since 2011-12 is, you know, Twitter, open up, be more transparent with your algorithms. Um, if you have tools to help people protect themselves, um, open them up to everybody who needs them. Stop treating this like it's high school. I mean, I think that's why I don't understand it, because I, I never quite, all the, the high school games seem to go over my head, and I don't understand why they would not validate and verify everybody. So, I mean, and that, I think that that's the, like, this is how I'll wrap things up, is on one hand, we have this sort of weaponized transparency, right, so that we've seen, and I think the WikiLeaks is the sort of exa working example of this, um, in which sort of this notion that all information should be made public, um, but including the information of vulnerable people, um, is a weaponized, in order to suit a particular p political purpose, is weaponized transparency. But we also have, with a rise of algorithms and with actions like Twitter's, a weaponized opacity, right? And so we have the ways in which algorithms, which are actually making sort of life and death, and I mean, Twitter, Twitter verification is not a life and death, but in some ways sort of algorithmic decision-making that is increasingly life and death is also a weaponized opacity. And so we're sort, of, we're sort of living in this world now where all these things, and I joked when I opened it with Harry Potter, the sort of the weaponized Harry Potter, but we're all finding ourselves in this world of increasing violence, rhetorical and literal violence, in which our actions and others' actions are sort of being raised to this level of weaponization. And to me, that's like a, you know, the, the connections, the connections of violence, performance, and fascism are really ones that I wish more people would think about instead of just praising when your particular dog is winning or losing a dog fight. One well, and... and kind of following the lead again of, of our U.S. government, the cybersecurity guidance that was put out by the Obama administration um, this last week really helps emphasize and defend the importance of cybersecurity being about protecting property and commerce and financial and very little about people protecting people and individuals. And um, I think this is something that algorithms are and, and, and our kind of Silicon Valley world is just going to champion and, and codify and make sure is, is the rule of law. Great. Well, until next week then.